This episode of Intelligent Medicine is brought to you by the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. Did you know that olive oil is at its peak of flavor and nutrition right after it's fresh pressed at harvest time? That's why my favorite olive oil is delivered to me direct from the latest harvest, thanks to the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. And now you can try a bottle yourself, normally $39, for just $1 with no obligation to buy anything else. Visit MyFavoriteOliveOil.com. In my case, it truly is MyFavoriteOliveOil.com. MyFavoriteOliveOil.com. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and I'm sure that many of you are going to find this a very compelling subject because uh, irritable bowel syndrome and associated GI disorders highly prevalent. Uh, if you uh, do not suffer from it personally, uh, you certainly have a loved one or a friend or an associate uh, who's afflicted with this condition. We're going to talk to uh, one of the foremost experts on this uh, area. Uh, he's been a previous guest in this program. I invited him back because uh, he really offers a very uh, comprehensive view on IBS. Uh, he's Dr. Benjamin Brown. He's an Australian naturopathic physician who now lives in the UK, and he's contributing editor to Integrative Healthcare and Applied Nutrition, also author of a great book, The Digestive Health Solution. And he uh, writes and blogs uh, frequently about subjects related to uh, not just digestive health, but also uh, integrative medicine in general. Uh, he's a great resource. And so uh, without further ado, here's Dr. Benjamin Brown. Welcome back. It's nice having you back on Intelligent Medicine. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Thank you so much. It's um, a privilege to be able to talk to you. Okay. Uh, and where am I uh, speaking to you from? Uh, where are you now? I'm in uh, London, England. Okay. So through the miracle of modern communications, uh, I hope it's not too late for you over there. Uh, you know, it's not past your bedtime. We made it a little bit uh, earlier stateside so that you wouldn't be uh, falling into your teacups. Um, <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, so, okay. So, uh, well, first of all, uh, in, in the past, you've written a, a very interesting article with a great tagline, nine common myths about digestive problems. So maybe we can tee off on this subject by dispelling some of the myths about IBS. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you may need to lead me through some of those myths, but um, I, think, I think one of the key ones that really comes up for a lot of people is this idea that it's all in people's heads. And... I mean, this um, has plagued irritable bowel syndrome since it's an inception as a as an idea or syndrome. And one of the issues is in the name itself. You know, irritable. It sounds like it's, you know, a psychological problem, um, but it's not at all. It's physiological, and that's where the term originates from. In fact, it's quite clear and a fairly reproducible phenomena in people with this cluster of symptoms we call irritable bowel syndrome is a. Uh, is an irritation of the gastrointestinal tract itself, and it is um, it is it is easily um, it is easy to cause pain and discomfort with what is otherwise fairly normal phenomena for other people, like eating and swallowing and digesting food. 
uh, will become painful and, and cause discomfort and, and other serious symptoms in people with this, this thing called IBS. So I think that's one of the probably most important myths that really needs to be dispelled for people. And in one of your papers, you say that IBS is not one, uh, you know, kind of a wastebasket term. Okay, you don't have ulcerative colitis, you don't have uh, bleeding, you don't have uh, uh, inflammation uh, that's detectable. So then you end up uh, being given this wastebasket diagnosis of IBS. Yes, you're in distress. We acknowledge it. Uh, we'll give it a name. Uh, it's not one, but more than a dozen different conditions, which are, you know, each amenable to a strategy. Uh, th- and there's no single uh, approach that uh, helps each and every patient. Right. Ab- absolutely. And I think the sad thing is that both you and I know this, but the problem is, is that, you know, it's this is not the way people are looking at irritable bowel syndrome is is having underlying manageable causes. The tragic thing, and people who've experienced IBS and not got any help from their physician, or, you know, know this, is that they're given this label, they're given maybe symptomatic treatment at best, which isn't very effective and often can make things worse in other ways, and, and they just don't get better. Um, you, so I, In fact, I, in one of your papers, you, you cite that the yeah. success rate of current available strategies, and we'll talk about some of the standard treatments and their inadequacies, it's only about a quarter, 25% of people report improvements, and that leaves a lot of people high and dry. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's really underappreciated, too, is the severity of IBS for some people. It, it can be really crippling, you know, really impact their ability to hold down relationships, mm-hmm. jobs, affect their quality of life. It's uh, It can be horrible. And you know, if you're given options that just don't work very well and certainly don't resolve the problem, uh, you are high and dry, as you put it. And it literally can create uh, agoraphobia, people who are afraid to uh, go out of, out of the house. You know, they, they sometimes spend the morning, uh, uh, you know, embracing the toilet bowl, so to speak, uh, preparing themselves, evacuating, and spending an inordinate time uh, getting ready to sally forth into the world. And then uh, they have to worry about, you know, where's the nearest bathroom, literally? Right. And, you know, they can't go to a sporting event. They can't go to a, a movie, a theater, uh, romantic, uh, 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 possibilities are precluded, uh, all kinds of devastating consequences. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, you know, that's a really great way to put it is it, it is almost developing a kind of agoraphobia where people have difficulty just going out into the world. It's, it's true. So what are some of the uh, conventional treatments uh, and what are, you know, what's the success rate, the pluses and minuses of current approaches for IBS? Yeah, I mean, as as you know, the, you know, typically the um, treatments that are given to people with IBS are based on a pretty uh, simplistic classification criteria. So normally when people um, I mean, we could go into more depth on diagnosis, but normally people are labeled with IBS and then they sort of fall into a few categories depending on their bowel movements, whether they're suffering more from constipation, more diarrhea or more mixed symptoms, or maybe they have a more troubling symptom like pain. And based on that observation, clinically, they're just given symptomatic uh, treatments. So things like antispasmodics, antidepressants may be sometimes used for pain relief antidiurals or fiber 
if they're constipated. Yeah, that's often and, that's often the, the prescription. It's like uh, take some Metamucil, okay? Yeah, and, you know, uh, call me in the morning or you know, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, and it's it just it just doesn't work well for most people. It um, it's a in fact, fact it, it can the, backfire. You know, the, the uh, adding fiber to the diets uh, or artificial fiber uh, to people who already have a distension and bloating uh, can make things worse. Absolutely, and and this is a really well established fact that I think again is underappreciated is that fiber will aggravate symptoms for some people, um, and you know, so why why are we doing this and not being more aware of this and personalizing therapy. You know, some people may benefit, but other people are made worse. So, uh, the, uh, there's a new, uh, kid on the block in terms of uh, therapeutic options for IBS. And, uh, because it involves prescribing a drug, uh, doctors just love to reach for their prescription pad. Uh, it, the notion of SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth has become popular because it yields uh, a prescription for a medication called uh, Zyfaxin or uh, uh, Rifaximin. I don't know right. what it's called uh, across the pond, but here it's the brand name is Zyfaxin. An expensive drug, uh, a drug that is sometimes uh, helpful for patients. Uh, is that an overly simplistic approach to SIBO? Um, I, f- I feel like it is. And, you know, I know you've worked with SIBO for many years and been you know, very aware of the developments of therapeutic approaches to this. But there are a few key limitations with this idea that you do a SIBO test and you prescribe an antibiotic. And the first one is, is that the, you know, it's a very limited view of IBS is, is the first thing, is that that is not the only cause or reason why people might have symptoms. So it's not, unfortunately, as easy as, oh, look, we found an underlying problem that will help most people and, Find a bug, use a drug. We sometimes uh, use that meme. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And it's not, unfortunately, it's not that simple. Wouldn't it be great if it was? And um, the problem is, is the test itself has a degree of inaccuracy, which then throws into question the, you know, what we're seeing with the medication. But the medication itself also doesn't work that well for a lot of people and could potentially have, um, adverse effects in the long term as well. So it does have really important limitations. As you point out, it can work well for some patients, but as a whole, it doesn't appear to be a really effective um, intervention for, for the majority of people, and it certainly isn't, uh, doesn't appear to be a cure. This episode of Intelligent Medicine is brought to you by Healthy Aging, providing you with the unique energy support of Pure NT Factor. NT Factor is the only nutritional formula clinically proven to reduce fatigue, whatever the cause, whether it be age, illness, or just being run down. NT Factor from Nutritional Therapeutics repairs damaged cells and restores healthy bacteria in your digestive tract. Clinical trials have shown NT Factor reduces fatigue by almost half, and it even reverses some symptoms of aging. I've been taking NT Factor for years with a 45-day money-back guarantee of nothing to lose. To order, call 800-982-9158. That's 800-982-9158. Or go to ntfactor.com. That's ntfactor.com. When it comes to diet, 
Uh, I think uh, doctors have a very limited understanding of uh, the proper strategy for uh, irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, commonly, they'll say, well, you know, make sure you have a high fiber diet. You know, make sure you eat lots of fruits and vegetables to uh, support your digestion. And, and for some people, that, that works. You know, if they're eating, uh, you know, uh, a very uh, poor quality, ultra processed food diet and they're constipated, uh, adding plenty of natural fiber is beneficial and can restore uh, natural uh, peristalsis and, and, and relieve symptoms. But uh, in many cases, that, that's an inadequate strategy. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. And I mean, one of the, you know, it's almost an immutable truth around diet and nutrition is that everyone's different and they respond differently to different foods. And the case of fiber in IBS is just a classic example of that is that it, you rightly point out, it will help some people, but other people will feel a lot worse. And it's unfortunately a, a bit unclear why that's occurring. Um, it may be something to do with differences in bugs in the gut or, or the sensitivity of the bowel to, you know, to distension and fiber and, you know, that fermentation that occurs. But the reality is, is that some people just don't respond and they can be, they can feel a lot worse on fiber. So we need to be very conscious of that. And, you know, if you are told to try fiber, um, it really should be in a graded sort of investigative or titrated type approach um, to see if you tolerate it. Mm -hmm. And then there's actually what is, is sort of the opposite of that approach, which is uh, a lower residue diet uh, or a low FODMAP diet. Can you talk about that and its potential in addressing uh, IBS symptoms? So for some patients, that's a real slam dunk. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the, the low FODMAP diet is a, is a really interesting therapeutic intervention um, developed by a group of researchers at Monash University se several years ago, and it's really moved into prime time now. You know, a lot of people are aware of it, talking about it, utilizing it, and fundamentally it works by restricting fermentable uh, carbohydrates in the diet. And when I say fermentable, it means your gut bacteria can digest and metabolize these, produce gas, and that could be a problem if you've got a really sensitive bowel. Um, the, the important thing is, and I think as a caveat, is that that's also quite healthy. You know, if you if you think about it, this fermentation of mm -hmm. fiber is really mm -hmm. critical. Um, and that's important when we talk about the FODMAP diet because there are sort of limitations in some ways to this approach in that it should really be viewed as a symptomatic approach mm -hmm. and more short-term. Um, so it has... We're looking at it really as a therapeutic, symptomatic intervention and not something you necessarily do for life, but you do short-term to get those symptoms under control. Yeah, that, that's what I generally tell patients is that this is not a, a lifetime prescription. It's a, sort of an experiment to see if you can alleviate your symptoms, maybe right. rebalance your intestinal flora, and then we can reintroduce more foods. Because the very guy who developed this, uh, a Professor Gibson down there in Australia, uh, mm -hmm. refers to something called Gibson's Conundrum. Uh, which is this idea yeah. that, you know, okay, you restrict the fermentation, you restrict the fermentation, but you actually need uh, the fermentation of certain fibers to produce beneficial short-chain fatty acids, which actually heal the gut yeah. uh, and which are essential for gut health. So, you know, it's kind of, okay, you, we can alleviate symptoms, but maybe uh, it's to the detriment long-term of patients, as you pointed out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's well put. And I think one of the curious things about the low FODMAP diet too is it's I'm I'm starting to feel like it's many roads can lead to Rome and 
you know, there are other ways to get symptomatic improvement in people that may be easier sometimes or, or more effective in certain patients. So, you know, I think, I think we need to step back and look at the FODMAP diet, as you rightly put, as, as just a, an experiment to see if we can alleviate symptoms in the short term. A curious choice of uh, phraseology because it's actually the Rome classifications uh, <laughs> that are uh, characterizing chronic, uh, uh, chronic irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah, that's right. true. <laughs> that they, that's what they use. They use a certain set of criteria to say, you know, so that's an interesting choice of words. Uh, so, uh, the, you know, there are other uh, dietary strategies that are sometimes employed. Some people go on a gluten-free diet, and, and yet that's been critiqued because they say, well, you know, that's kind of a fad. That's what, you know, Hollywood stars are and celebrities are using and uh, influencers are talking about on, uh, you know, uh, Instagram and Twitter. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's a disservice to tell people not to have, uh, uh, weed if they are not suffering from actual celiac disease. So do you think there's something short of, you know, full-blown celiac disease that merits a trial of a gluten-free diet? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, what's really emerged in the literature is this, um, curious, um, reactivity to gluten we call non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And it is, uh, somewhat controversial, but it is clearly um, something of a clinical reality. And, you know, I think I, I do see this criticism of gluten-free diets too. And um, certainly there are shortfalls of gluten-free diets. If you don't need to be doing it, uh, it could be a problem. And it's also spawned a junk food industry. So right. You have to, you, the gluten-free uh, Oreos, you know, the gluten-free yeah. <laughs> uh, muffins, and, you know, they've got twice as many calories and blah, 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 you know. Right. Yeah. So it, has, it certainly does have problems. But I think if celebrities and influencers are talking about it, it's probably representative of how big the problem is. Right. And um, certainly uh, we don't know what the, the real issue is because there's no really robust biomarker for this kind of right. gluten sensitivity at the moment. So it's a little bit vague, but it does seem to have a relatively high prevalence, could be 5 to 10% of the population, which is huge. And um, certainly in people with symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome, well, this is one of the criteria that have been proposed for diagnosing non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So it's it is, it is really suggested that if you're exhibiting with these symptoms, you should at least be trying a gluten-free diet for a period of time to see if your symptoms alleviate, because wouldn't that be wonderful and solve you a whole lot of other problems? Indeed, uh, yeah. It's a, it's a quick fix a for a lot of people, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I think one of the, the myths that you uh, touch upon, or certainly one of the myths that's prevalent about irritable bowel syndrome, and even the, even the medical profession, is that uh, you know we tend to be binary about uh, digestive disorders, we say, okay, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, those are inflammatory disorders. We can go in there with a sigmoidoscope or a colonoscope and we can see how red and irritated the tissue is. But if that's not present, then, you know, all your digestive symptoms are IBS and there's no inflammation. But maybe there's some, you know, subtypes of IBS where there is inflammation. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, um, you know, as our investigative tools are getting better, both clinically and scientifically, um, what has become apparent is that IBS um, does have an inflammatory component or subtype, as you as you beautifully put it, as there may be some people in which this is really a factor. And this is a really fascinating area that's um, being explored currently in this in this field. And it does appear that 
some or a subset of people who fall into this criteria of IBS do have elevated, subtle, but elevated levels of inflammation that could be measured clinically even by your physician mm -hmm. uh, with more sensitive biomarkers. And if you do have that, it's likely, we don't know for sure yet because the science isn't, hasn't caught up with this yet, but it's likely that if you target that inflammatory process that's occurring and, and driving these IBS-like symptoms, you could really bring about significant relief for people. So I think this is a very exciting area that could um, help a subset of people with IBS. So one paradigm that uh, has been successful uh, in treating a lot of patients with uh, more serious conditions, with Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, is something called the specific carbohydrate diet. And that's a diet which is designed to break the vicious cycle of bacterial proliferation, the bacteria that crosstalk to the immune system in the gut. And it's, you know, how do you change that? Well, you can take tons of antibiotics from here to kingdom come. Uh, but how important is diet at breaking the vicious cycle of bad bacteria or dysbiosis in the gut that, that might ultimately be a trigger for uh, inflammation and IBS? It's, it's absolutely crucial. And, and the sad thing is it's, it's just overlooked, you know, because as you, you know, put it earlier, we've, we're looking for drugs for bugs and, it's not just drugs, but natural products as well. It, you know, the, the, by far, um, the biggest impact on the microbiome that's, you know, factor that's impacting our microbiome on a daily basis is the food that we're eating. And next to that, things like antibiotics and probiotics and, you know, they look a bit insignificant and, but sadly, it's a bit unexplored. The specific carbohydrate diet is an exception in the sense that there is um, considerable research that's happening behind that. We know that it influences the microbiome, which appears to be part of its mechanism of action. So it's really emerging as an important therapeutic intervention and it has been studied in IBS. In fact, it um, does seem to, like it does in irritable bowel disease, it does seem to alleviate symptoms of IBS as well. And you mentioned probiotics, and in IBS, probiotics can be a two-edged sword. I mean, there are products that are you know, mainstream commercial products. Dan and uh, yogurts contain something called Align, which is a proprietary probiotic that's supposed to help IBS. Uh, it's a little hit or miss. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what's the deal on probiotics? Uh, good, bad, indifferent? Yeah, I think um, I think they're a little bit oversold. I mean, they are an effective therapy, and they do work for some people. Um, but the re clinical realities, like when you, you know, we've got a lot of data now we can look at, and when you look at the data on probiotics, they tend to work for you know reasonably well for about one in seven people, and then they result in about a, a you know roughly fifty percent reduction in symptoms. So they are hit and miss, and they're not solving the problem uh, that's for sure they're more alleviating some of the symptoms so very useful clinically but as you rightly put it they're hit and miss and the you know a key um you know there are there are positives and negatives to them but i think uh you know one of the challenges we face with with probiotics moving forward is how to identify people who are really going to benefit but at the moment we're we're just not there yet yeah, it's, it's we tend we're doing a lot of uh, stool tests, stool analyses, and it's like okay, you have this bug or that bug, and you're missing this or that. Or, but we still don't have kind of a predictive model for uh, you know who will benefit from which probiotic. Uh, right. It's not so simple as oh, you're missing lactobacillus, so we'll give you lactobacillus and we'll fix everything up. Uh, it doesn't work so neatly yet. 
Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. It's sort of the story that's, you know, been sold for many years around probiotics is that, you know, good bugs, bad bugs, take a take take a yogurt and it'll all fix and you'll be good. And but it, but in clinical reality it just unfortunately it doesn't work like that. So I think, you know, with time we'll be able to be more sophisticated with probiotics and in the meantime they can be useful to try uh, for sure and some people respond really well but, but um, there's certainly a lot more to the overall picture of IBS than, than just taking a probiotic and hoping it'll go away. Indeed. All right. Uh, we're going to uh, pause because we divide our podcast into two parts. And in part two, I want to focus on uh, solutions. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, some of the uh, most uh, effective strategies uh, for IBS and, and also talk about uh, the implications of IBS with regard to uh, other uh, related conditions, uh, fibromyalgia. You recently wrote an article about fibromyalgia and we'll talk about the link between fibromyalgia and IBS and does diet matter? Can it help sufferers of that uh, challenging condition? Uh, our guest is Dr. Benjamin Brown. He's a naturopathic physician uh, currently situated in London, England, author of The Digestive Health Solution. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. 